If you have a Bible, take it out. Find Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. There are some notes in the bulletin. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. This is week four of six with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. We're spending Christmas with Isaiah, and we're celebrating Christmas by going back to the Old Testament to look at prophecies, at predictions, at promises, as hints of what the Messiah would come to do, who he would be, how he would be born, what his life would be like, uh, eventually how he's going to die, how he's going to raise from the dead. And the passages that we've looked at in this series are Isaiah 7, 9, 42, 49, 50, and 52 and 53. And so this morning we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 49. A few weeks back we talked about Isaiah 7 and 9. They both contain prophecies about the birth and the identity of Jesus. Just to bring you up to speed, if you missed those weeks, Isaiah 7 and 9 talked to us about a baby who would be born. A human baby is going to be born. But both of those passages go on to give us hints that this human baby would be more than just human. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. He would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And so we see this tension in Isaiah 7, 9, that somebody's going to come, a baby's going to be born, but he's not just going to be like every other baby. He's going to be different. Last week we talked about Isaiah 42. It tells us that the servant of the Lord would bring justice to the earth. He has a mission This baby that's going to be born, who's going to grow up to this glorious future. He's known, starting in chapter 42, as the servant of the Lord. And his mission, according to that first of the servant songs, is to bring justice to all the ends of the earth. We think about justice and we think, well, that comes about through military power. Or that comes about through political power power or influence. And what we found last week is that this justice that comes from the servant is actually going to come through him being submitted to injustice or unjustice. He's going to die wrongly, and through his death, he's going to bring justice. So this morning is Isaiah 49. It's the second of Isaiah's servant songs. There's four of them. This is number two. And I'll just be honest with you. This is not the easiest passage to make sense of. When you're just reading through your Bible or when you come to a passage like this for a sermon this morning, it's not the easiest text to make sense of. And here's the reason. Isaiah 49, 1-7 describes a Trinitarian conversation between the Lord and the servant of the Lord. Or if you wanted to say this a little bit differently, you could say this is a Trinitarian conversation between God the Father and God the Son. You see this other places in the Bible. You see it in Psalm 2. You see it in Psalm 110, where God the Father and God the Son are having a conversation. You have to pay attention to who's saying what. You see it, for example, at Jesus' baptism, where he's dunked under the water, and they bring him back up, and the Father speaks to the Son. You see it at the end of Jesus' life, John chapter 17, when Jesus knows his hour has come, his time has come, and he prays this long extended prayer with the disciples listening. We call it the high priestly prayer, right? Conversations between God the Father and God the Son, and you see that right here. So if you're just looking at the text in Isaiah 49, I'll just point out the the breakdown here. If you you look at the punctuation in the quotation marks, verse 1 and verse 2 
is the servant of the Lord talking. And then in verse 3, the Lord himself interjects, and the Lord has something to say. And then in verse 4, the servant responds again. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, it's the Lord speaking again. So we've got to pay attention to who is saying what, and we'll try to keep that clear this morning. The big idea of the passage, when you listen to this conversation, is really simple. The servant of the Lord brings salvation to all the peoples. All the peoples. Not all the people, as in every single individual is going to end up being saved, but all of the peoples, all of the nations, all of the different people groups of the earth eventually are going to hear about and experience this salvation that comes from the servant of the Lord. So that's the big idea. Take your Bible. We're just going to read the first seven verses, and we'll jump right in. This is the word of God from Isaiah 49.1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely... My right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the light bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to read this prophecy, this promise. What a privilege to overhear this conversation between Father and Son, between the Lord and the servant of the Lord. Father, what a privilege to see that from the very beginning you had a plan to save your people, not just from Jacob, not just from Israel, but from all of the nations, all of the peoples. Father, we gladly find ourselves numbered among those people this morning. We are thankful that you have saved us. And we pray that as we read this conversation, as we think about this conversation, that you would give us the ability to understand and to sort through it and to make sense of what what we see here, but Father, also to let it change the way that we approach you in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Americans love a good story. I tried to do some research this week on how much money 
is made in the United States every year from people buying fiction books, just stories. I tried to look up how much money is made every year from people watching television, just watching a story unfold on the small screen, and I tried to do some research on the big screen. How much money do the big Hollywood producers make for all of these movies they put out every year? And all that research, the most interesting thing that I learned, if I'm honest with you, is that the nation of Nigeria produces way more movies every year than Hollywood. They call it not Hollywood, but Nollywood. Nigeria's Hollywood. They make tons of movies, but we make all the money. Tons and tons of money. We're talking tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars that Americans gladly fork over every year because we want to hear, we want to watch, we want to see a good story unfold. And if you know anything about good storytelling, you know that good storytellers don't just come right out and tell you about the characters. They tell you a story. They don't just come out and say, old John Doe, he was a mean old toot. Instead, they tell you a story about John Doe, and they tell you something he did that was really rotten, something that would really get under your skin. And by the time you get to the end of that story, you say, I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy at all. They don't have to come out and say it, but through the storytelling, you learn about the characters. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, most of the Bible is a story. Most of the Bible, what we hold in our hands every Sunday morning, what you read during the week, most of it is just a story. And there's certain places in the Bible where the authors come out directly and they just say, God is like this. God is like this. This is what God has done. There's some direct parts. But the majority of this book is a story that doesn't just come straight out and tell you about God or come straight out and tell you about Jesus. They just tell you the story. And as you read the story and you find yourself in the story, you learn about the characters. You learn about who God is and you learn about who you are and you learn about how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand this morning that Isaiah was a storyteller. We call him a prophet, but essentially he was a storyteller. He was sent by God to God's people to tell them stories so that they could make sense of life. They could make sense of who God is and who they were and all of the different things happening in their lives. I want to put a little map on the screen. Some of you recognize this sort of map. If you were here the last couple of months, we worked our way through the minor prophets and we talked about the nation of Israel and how early on the nation of Israel was actually split into two different kingdoms. David had them all together, Solomon had them all together, but then there was a rift, and Rehoboam took one group, and Jeroboam took the other group, and you had Israel in the north, roughly the blue, and you had Judah in the south, in the orange. Eventually, both of these nations get kicked out of the promised land for their wickedness, for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness. But the northern kingdom of Israel went first, and the southern kingdom of Judah went second, and Isaiah lived right in between those two events. He lived after the northern kingdom had been sent into exile, but he was sent to Judah to tell these stories, and he was waiting or looking for the day when Judah was also going to be kicked out of the land. So you got Isaiah the storyteller. Some of the stories he tells are what you might think of as past tense. 
right? Things that have happened in the past. And he tells these stories so that God's people understand why in the world would God kick his people out of the promised land? Well, Isaiah tells them stories, and through these stories, they begin to make sense of why Israel was kicked out. Some of the stories look forward. They're what you might call future tense. And Isaiah is saying to the people, this is why you and the southern kingdom are about to get kicked out of the promised land. This is why God is about to do what he's going to do. But some of the stories Isaiah tells look even further. I mean way into the future, centuries into the future. And these stories talk about how God was going to come back and save his people. He was going to bring them back to the promised land. He was going to unite them as one group of people. He was going to save them by sending a child to be born of a virgin. This child would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He would bring justice to all the nations, and his salvation would be for all of the peoples. And Isaiah starts to tell these stories, and the people begin to have these hints about what's going to happen. What's interesting about Isaiah 49 is that his story, the story that this prophet is telling, is actually a conversation. If you're male in the room, if you're a guy, you say, that's not a story. That's a conversation. But if you're a female, you know that very much is a story. That's how ladies like to tell stories, right? They recount the whole conversation. If you talk to a guy and you say, well, what'd you do at lunch today? Oh, I went here. Did you see anybody? No, I saw Joe. What'd he say? Eh. He's good. That's the story. But if that happens to your wife, she's going to say, guess where I went to lunch today? Uh, I don't know. No guess. And you're going to go through that, and she's going to say, guess who I saw? I saw Sally. And do you know what she told me? And then she's going to tell you everything that Sally told her. But then the story's not over yet. Because then you're going to hear, this is what I said to Sally. And then the guys are completely lost, but the story's not over yet. Because the wife's going to turn around and say, and then Sally said this. And then I said this. And you're going to go through the whole conversation, every last word of it. This happened to me just last night. I'm going to tell a story on my mother-in-law, and I can do it because she's my favorite mother-in-law of all time. All-time favorite. Okay? Every now and then, my father-in-law takes these fishing trips to Mexico, and he goes and he fishes, and then he comes back, and we get together with him. We say, how was the trip? It's good. Did you catch some fish? Yep. Did you have fun? It was awesome. I've heard the story. We went and ate last night, and my mother-in-law said, well, I sat down on the plane by this little girl named Susie, and she was from such and such, and she was going here, and I told her this, and then she told me this, and we talked about this, and I heard the whole conversation about her and Susie. And then she said a little bit later, we went shopping, and we went in this store. And do you know the girl in there used to live in Dallas, and she used to go to school in Lubbock, and we started talking about this, and she told me she was living, and I heard the whole story about that. She said, and then we went to the 9-11 memorial, and we were in the 9-11 memorial, and I started talking, and you hear the whole thing. That's how ladies tend to tell stories. They recount these conversations. So ladies, this ought to be easy for you, right? Isaiah 49 is just a a walk in the park. Guys come to this and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need a little help here. I don't know if Isaiah's wife helped him write this part of the story or I don't know. I don't know how this came about. But he's telling us a story and he's telling us a story about a conversation, right? The conversation is between the Lord, God the Father, 
And the servant of the Lord, who we would call God the Son, not really chronologically right to call him Jesus, so we'll say God the Father and God the Son, and he's looking into the future, and he's telling us this conversation. And if you can trek through it, right, for some of us it is challenging to sort of sort through this and pay attention to the quotation marks and see who's saying what, and they're responding to each other. But if you can trek through it, we learn some amazing things about the servant of the Lord, things that Isaiah wants us to know. Here's the first thing you need to know. The servant of the Lord is the true Israel. The servant of the Lord is the true Israel. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 3. This is the Lord, keeping it straight, talking to the servant. He said to me, the Lord said to the servant, You are my servant, Israel. You are Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You are my servant. You are Israel, the true Israel. You're the one in whom I'm going to be glorified. This doesn't make a lot of sense unless you've, you've read the rest of the Old Testament. And if you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that up to this point, Israel never lived up to the ideals that God had for these people. Never. Not from the moment Moses was getting the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and they were breaking them down below. Not from the time of the, uh, the conquest with Joshua when Achan is stealing things on the side and ruining the whole thing. Not during the period of the judges. Not when David was king. Not when Solomon was queen. They just never lived up to the ideal that God had for them. And so God kicked them out of the land. And it was shocking. Right? We just read through the story and we say, okay, God kicked them out. But when you read it in the context of the whole big story, the Bible's this one story, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God created this nation with Abraham. And he started with next to nothing. And then he saved these people, first through Joseph and then through Moses, bringing them out of Egypt. And then he settled them in their own land, this promised land with Joshua. And then he blessed them under David and under Solomon. Why would God then kick these people out? He has gone to the greatest length to bring these people in so that they could be his people and he could be their God and they could have this relationship. Why all of a sudden is he kicking them out? It's because they never lived up to the standard that God had set for them. He always wanted them to be this light for the nations where the nations could look to this group of people and say, ah, that's what the true God is like and that's what it looks like to be his people. And they never lived up to that. But here, the Lord says to the servant, you are Israel. There's always this hope running through the Old Testament that maybe there would be a remnant faithful to the Lord. Maybe even when most of the nation was apostate, maybe a few of these folks, a tiny remnant would be faithful and God could use them. And that hope came true. There was a faithful remnant of one. And it was Jesus of Nazareth. He is the true Israel. Throughout all the centuries, these people failed to live up to God's plan for them. But then enters the story a Jewish man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who keeps all of the covenant obligations that the people had never kept. He keeps all of them. And eventually he's going to receive all the covenant promises because he's the one who kept them. 
He and he alone is the true Israel. Look, I know you can go to the Christian bookstore today and you can make your way over to the prophecy section and you can find all sorts of books that want you to think the geopolitical state of Israel today is, is key in all these fulfillments or the United States is key in all these fulfillments or the European Union is key in all these fulfillments. Everybody's got this idea about who's going to be key in the fulfillment of all this. And Isaiah's given you the answer right here. You're the true Israel. Jesus, the servant, you kept the covenant obligations. You get the covenant promises. You and you alone are the true Israel of God. And look, God isn't just sitting back sort of twiddling his thumbs saying, man, I hope one of these guys gets it one of these days. We have really had a bad run of luck here. Maybe someday someone's going to do it. He's had a plan from the beginning. That's the second thing you need to see about the servant. The servant of the Lord was chosen by the Lord. It was all part of his plan from the beginning. Look at Isaiah 49 verse 1. It says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Sounds an awful lot like God sending the angel to talk to Joseph and Mary and saying to them, you're going to conceive and you're going to bear a child. And before he's ever born, the angel says, you're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. This was fulfilled in his life, in his birth. Look at Isaiah 49, 7 at the very end. It says, The Lord is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This was all the Lord's doing. It was all his plan. It wasn't just a a lucky, fortuitous turn of events where someone finally showed up and did it all right. This was all part of God's plan. Here's how Peter explains it. Look at this verse in 1 Peter 1. This is the kind of verse that just makes your head explode. You can think about it for days and days and days and you don't get anywhere. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Christ, the Lamb of God, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. I mean, that just makes your head explode. I can remember as a child trying to just think back, how how could it be that God doesn't have a beginning? And trying to wrestle with that in my brain. You don't get anywhere, do you? Here Peter says, look, this plan to ransom his people back, this plan that God fulfilled in Jesus, he knew the plan before he created the world. I mean, chew on that. This was God's plan. He named him in the womb. He chose the servant. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before God ever enacted this this plan that we call creation, in his mind he had the plan of salvation. The servant was chosen by the Lord. Isaiah tells us about the ministry of Jesus. He says this, The servant of the Lord spoke powerfully, but his ministry was marked by frustration. He spoke powerfully, but his ministry was marked by frustration. Look at Isaiah 49, 2. This is the servant speaking about what God will do for him. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
If you've ever read through the Gospel of Mark, as Mark tells the story of Jesus, you know that over and over again, Mark adds a little comment at the end of his story, and he says, the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority. He had authority when he spoke. Mark says it over and over and over again. We read earlier from Revelation chapter 1 that when Jesus made this post-resurrection glorified appearance of himself to John, He saw him as one whose eyes were burning and his face was like the sun and his hair was like wool and he had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You're not to take that literally as if he's got a blade sticking out of his face. You're to understand that John is saying to you his word is powerful and it cuts to the division of bone and marrow. It's living and it's active and it's strong and when it goes out it accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. He spoke powerfully And yet, if you've read through the story of the Gospels, you know that you get to the end of Jesus' life, and by every earthly measurement, his ministry was a failure. I don't mean to say to you that he failed ultimately. I just mean to say that by our earthly measurements of failure and success, it was a failure. The crowds came to listen, but they usually left angry and disillusioned. They didn't hang around for long. His closest friends took a nap and then ran away scared when he needed them the most. Just like Jesus told them it would happen. His enemies ended up having victory over him, right? Convicted him of unjust, trumped up, made up charges. He died at the hands of the Romans, the oppressors that the Jewish people hated. And he died as a common criminal. And he left behind the the sorriest bunch of ragtag, good-for-nothing disciples you've ever seen. Jesus, even in his life, laments several times that nobody seemed to be getting what he was talking about. Look at these references I'll put on the screen. Matthew 17, 17. This one is Jesus talking to his disciples. He said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's how he described his followers. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Then he spoke these words to the city of Jerusalem who had largely rejected him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And Isaiah describes this frustration. Look at Isaiah 49 and look what he says. In verse 4, this is the servant speaking. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. For all the miracles and all the teachings and all the feeding of the masses and the walking on water and all of it, what, what did I have to show for it? It looked like a waste. And there's honesty in that. There's frustration in that. But there's also faith because he says at the end of verse 4, my right is with the Lord and my recompense Right, My payback, the one who's going to set it all right, is with the Lord. It looks like I haven't accomplished much, but the Lord is in charge of that, and the Lord will set it right. Look at the end, verse 7. The Lord describes the servant as one who was deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. We think of the hymn, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with Rejection, acquainted with grief, acquainted with 
suffering, despised, and abhorred by the nation. The servant of the Lord also came to be a light to the nations. A light to the nations. Verse 6 and 7 in Isaiah 49 are remarkable verses. This is my favorite part of the conversation. Let's just read them again. He says, this is the Lord speaking to the servant. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light. That's not enough. Like, I could just send you and you could save the remnant of Jacob and you could bring back the lost, the lost children of Israel. We could do that. That could be the plan. But I don't think that's enough. We want to go bigger. We want to go better. We want to do something far greater than that. So what we're going to do, the end of verse 6, I'm going to make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the story Isaiah is telling us. Somebody's going to come. The servant is going to come. He's going to be a light for all the nations. He's going to speak powerfully. He's going to be rejected and he's going to know discouragement and frustration. Luke, in the New Testament, picks up this story and he just picks up without missing a beat. And he doesn't even take take a breath. It just picks up right where Isaiah left off. And there's a part of the Christmas story where Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus. They take him to present him at the temple and to offer the sacrifices that were required under the law after childbirth and to have him circumcised. They take baby Jesus to the temple and they bump into an an old guy named Simeon. Simeon had a close relationship with the Lord and the Lord had told Simeon, Simeon, you will not die until you see the Messiah. Now, I don't know if he said it out loud, if he sent it in a a text message, wrote it in the clouds. I don't know how he communicated that message to Simeon, but Simeon knew, I'm going to live to see the Messiah. And one day, as he's going about his business in the temple, in walks Mary, Joseph, and their baby. And he walks up to that young couple, and the Bible says he takes that baby in his hands, and it's like a complete Broadway moment. He just starts singing in the middle of the temple. Right? People have said, my kids look cute, but no one has ever picked them up and started singing a song. I don't know if that's happened to you. But he took the baby in his arms, and he's looking at him, and somehow he knew. And this is what he said. Simeon starts singing. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, literally to the nations, to all of the different peoples you have sent this light, and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon catches a small glimpse, a small glimpse. Did he understand it all? No, but he catches a small glimpse of what God was doing through Jesus, through the Messiah, through the servant of the Lord, and immediately his response is to worship. Look, when we look back in hindsight and we look at Isaiah 49 and we see all the fulfillments in the life of Jesus, our response ought to be exactly the same. Not to just break out Broadway style and sing our own song at the end of the service, but we ought to respond with worship as we're gathered in this room and when we leave this room. And so we end with this. How does Isaiah 49 impact our worship at Christmas? Two simple thoughts. Number one, 
At Christmas, we celebrate the greatest rescue mission of all time. The greatest rescue mission of all time. And secondly, the servant of the Lord deserves glory for our salvation. Christmas is not just a baby was born. Christmas is God sent his son on a rescue mission to save us, to save us from our sin, to save us from this world, to save us from the devil, to save us from ourselves. Salvation has come, and this salvation is not just for Jacob, it's not just for Israel, it's for all of the nations. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You understand, this is why at Christmas, it's not a coincidence that we do it at Christmas. At Christmas, we ask you to give to a missions offering. We watch videos about missionaries. We start encouraging you to go on mission trips in the upcoming year. We want you to give. We want you to go. We want you to be involved in what God's doing in the world. Why? Because when God sent his son, when the Lord sent this servant, right, this plan began to really pick up steam. This plan that began in eternity past in God's mind began to play out in real life, in real time. And this rescue mission really got boots on the ground. Literally, God became flesh to save us. And at Christmas, we just stop and we say, thank you, God, for sending Jesus to rescue us. And thank you, God, that you let us be part of the mission. Right? You let us be part of taking and sending the gospel to the very, very ends of the earth. Look at Isaiah 49, 7, the end. He's worthy of our glory. He's worthy of our praise. Isaiah, the storyteller, ends with this. This is the Lord speaking about the servant. Kings shall rise, excuse me, kings shall see and arise. Princes, they will prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Right? Just before that, he says, you're the servant of rulers. Your people rejected you and the people of power looked down on you. But in the the end, they're going to bow. They're going to bow on their face in your presence. And God gave us a little preview of that. When the wise men, the magi, travel and they see Jesus, and these men bring their gifts and they bow down and they worship. You and I, whether you realize it or not, you get a little preview of this every Sunday when we gather in this room. And we sing songs and we say, God, you're worthy of the glory. God, you're worthy of our lives. God, we give all of our allegiance, all of our devotion to you. We're doing what Isaiah said was going to happen. Right? We're bowing down. We're prostrating ourselves before the Lord. And the Bible says in the end it's going to be universal. It won't just be this small gathering of people here. It won't just be three magi from a, another country. It'll be every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to bow and we're going to pray this morning.